I'm super excited about my two guests today, Ty Gibson and Alan Reinock. Now, Alan has been a guest on Do Justice before. He's a civil rights attorney and the executive director of the Church State Council, a religious liberty ministry on the West Coast. Ty is co-director of Lightbearers, a full-throttle gospel ministry based in Jasper, Oregon, and he's the pastor of the Storyline Adventist Church in Eugene, Oregon. He's a passionate communicator with a message that opens minds and moves hearts. He teaches on a variety of topics, always emphasizing God's unfailing love as the central theme of the Bible. And he's also the author of eight best-selling books. Both Ty and Ellen are voices I have a lot of respect for. Today, we discuss some hot topics people are focused on right now, global pandemics, religious liberty, the end of the world, and more. And I love how these two guests distill these topics down to their essence and then give us their perspective on what really matters for followers of Jesus living in our world. So right now, everyone in America, I think it's safe to say, uh, is, is thinking about one thing, at least part of the time, and that is the novel coronavirus, something we're calling COVID-19. It seems like this little virus that's invisible to most of us has kind of like brought the world to its knees. Is this the end of the world? Uh, how, do we, how do we know if we're at the end of the world? And, and, and let me just address this to you, Ty. I'll let you start out with this. Um, yeah, is this the end of the world? And, and, and how do we avoid being the lethargic frog in the teapot, uh, so to speak, on one hand, and the wild-eyed, alarmist, reactionary Christian uh, on the other hand? Steve, I love this question because it, it's very practical, both intellectually and uh, socially. It's practical intellectually because it prompts us to think clearly. Um, it, it's very practical relationally and socially because it, it prepares us to conduct ourselves in a productive way in our relationships in this, in this really serious, stressful time. I would say that no, this is not the end of the world, but it very well could be a contributing factor to events that, that could bring about the unfolding of end time events. So, for example, in Matthew 24, verse 6, uh, Jesus says, See that you are not troubled, for all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, he's just delineated a series of, you know, crises that will be taking place in the world. And he says, no, this isn't the end in verse 6. And then in verse 9, he says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. That's the New King James Version. And in, in the NIV and actually in the Greek, it says these are the beginning of, of birth pains. And so he's using a metaphor that is pointing to a woman who's in labor. And, you know, we're three men, so we don't know how this works, but <laughs> I'm sure we've all observed it. And we know that the characteristics of a woman in labor are that the contractions become more frequent and more intense until the baby is, is finally born out of the womb. And so Jesus is saying something here very ingenious. He's saying what we should be looking for is a kind of escalation of these kinds of events to the point that they bring about a, a crisis. So, so I would say that this coronavirus crisis could be a contributing factor. It could be a trigger for other events that could all converge to come together to bring about 
the unfolding of final events. But no, this particular event as an isolated event, um, I think it's going to bring some changes in the world, but I don't think it is, in fact, the end. Mm. Ellen. So let me, let me pick up on that, I, because um, <clears throat> you and I are, are thinking along the same lines. Now, <clears throat> in Matthew 24, uh, Matthew reports the sermon just slightly differently than Luke does in Luke 21. Uh, Matthew omits reference to pestilence, where Luke adds, you know, famines and earthquakes and pestilences in diverse places, but the end is not yet. Now, this prophecy, uh, scholars understand, has broad application both historically during the Christian era and in a particular, well, threefold application. First, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and then <clears throat> during the Christian era, and then a, a final last day application. But I want to bring in uh, another element, another dimension of prophecy here. Uh, to kind of set the, uh, the the big picture. Revelation, which is a Jewish book, borrows heavily from the Old Testament. And in particular, we see uh, in Revelation 15 and 16, seven plagues poured out upon the beast and the worshipers of the beast, those who receive the mark of the beast. Um, and that's a, a, a direct uh, pulling from the Passover story, and here we are, you know, on the eve of, mm. of Passover in a couple of weeks. But what is omitted from the Revelation prophecy are the first three plagues. In Exodus, there are ten plagues, as we know, three universal plagues, and then seven that are poor, that where God makes a distinction between the Jews and the Egyptians, and the seven last plagues only afflict the Egyptians. So I've been thinking about this recently, even before the coronavirus. Why is it that Revelation omits the first three plagues? And I think the answer in part has to be, well, in Egypt, all of the plagues were attention getters. They were all, God, you know, acted deliberately to uh, strike the gods of the Egyptians to get their attention and to show that the God of the Jews was the true God, and, uh, and, and ultimately to deliver his people. But at the end of time, whatever these famines and pestilences and earthquakes, they are not judgments of God. They are, if anything, uh, either attributable to you know, human malfeasance, uh, to sin in the world, or to the author of sin, to the devil himself but they are not attributable to God, and therefore the parallel with the first three universal plagues would not have been appropriate in the book of Revelation. Now, mm -hmm. I'm starting to see the, the so-called the, the so self-proclaimed prophets saying that these are judgments of God, and I don't think that they are true prophets. I, I think mm -hmm. that uh, these are not, ju you know, this plague... Uh, you know, this is not a judgment of God. Mm. Here, here. I Let, agree. Totally. Let's talk about another aspect of this that I think we as American Christians uh, tend to sometimes forget. I was uh, reading on Twitter uh, earlier today where somebody said, I'm not really buying the whole apocalypse thing. This has been the reality. And I think he's referring to like, you know, 
the kinds of uh, economic hardships and that kind of thing that we're going through right now and disease. He says, this has been the reality for most of the world for like two decades now. You're telling me Jesus only cares when it's the U.S.? LOL, please. <laughs> it's been the last days wow. in the Middle East since 2001. Enough. You know, and, and I think we do tend to interpret... What a great insight. Right? Yeah. I mean, because we're, we're very American-centric in our interpretation of end-time events usually, right? And so how do we... Mm. How do we go along? And that also goes along, by the way, with, right. I think, interpreting, interpreting the Bible by the newspaper, by the, you know, whatever's happening right now. We say, oh, this is a fulfillment instead of maybe the other way around. So how do we, how do we avoid that? How do we avoid the American-centric um, view of, of Bible prophecy, even though I think America does play a part? Uh, and, you know, just the reactionary, oh, this happened. It must be, uh, you know, we somehow, you know, make, make sure it fits into whatever our picture may be of Bible prophecy. Well, man, I would say that it's extremely crucial to understand that, that when both Matthew 24, uh, Luke 21, um, Daniel and Revelation, all of this eschatological prophecy, um, the events, the world events that are described are all really there to, to highlight deeper issues that are going on that we should really be paying attention to. A lot of people um, are not aware of the fact that not only did Matthew give an account of Jesus discussing end-time events uh, and, and Luke, but a lot of people uh, don't know that John actually has a record of Jesus talking about the principles that will be in play Mm. Um, in end time events. And this is in John chapter 16. It's, it's often overlooked, but this is amazing. It says, um, it says in verse two, which is a, ref, you know, an echo of what we see in, in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes. The time is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering God service. Mm -hmm. This is interesting because both Matthew 24 and Luke 21, as well as the book of Revelation, highlight this fact that there's going to be some, some kind of persecution that is going to be religiously motivated, right? Mm. So here, this is fascinating because, because in, in, in John's version of final events, he doesn't mention wars, rumors of wars, pestilence. He just says, hey, hatred is going to go viral, hatred's going to go vertical, and it's going to be coming from religious people. Wow. They will put you out of the synagogues, and the time is coming that those who kill you will think they're doing God's service. So these are religious people. Mm -hmm. these are, this, is, this is the religious establishment that is actually the source of the kind of hatred that's going to bring on final events. And here's the kicker, you guys. In verse 3, after he, he says, hey, they're going to kill you in God's name, verse 3, and these things they will do to you because they have not known me nor my father. Mm. So these are well, religious people that don't know God. These are religious people, and, and Jesus is saying, listen, what's going to happen is people are going to be doing some dastardly deeds in the name of God, and Jesus is saying, but mark my words, those who engage in hatred and persecution in my name 
don't actually know me or my father because they wouldn't be conducting themselves with violent speech and violent actions if they knew the father and myself for who we really are. So the, the underlying issue really of eschatology is that every single person is ultimately going to act out their picture of God. Right. That's the bottom line. Oh, that's deep. Ellen, world, events, world events are going to create a pressure cooker of sorts in which self-preservation rises to the top or concern for freedom and love for others rises to the top. So whatever's there in every person's consciousness is coming out. And, and we're seeing this, you know, in a kind of a microcosm with this coronavirus. I mean, people are, you know, making a rush on toilet paper and guns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So you see what I'm saying? There's, there's, we're already seeing that, that this coronavirus can bring out the selfishness in the human heart and it can bring out, you know, it's bringing out a bunch of other good stuff in people who are stepping up to the plate and risking their lives to serve others. You soft-pedaled the notion of many shall come in my name, Jesus said, and deceive many, that the, the apostasy and the idolatry of the last days, because let's face it, Revelation 13 talks of, you know, the, the mark of the beast passage. It's all about idolatry. It's the worship of the beast in its image. And the worship of anything but the creator is, is a form of idolatry. And mm. here, you know, if it's a worship of a beast, well, a beast in prophecy represents a nation. So you have uh, patriotism taken to an idolatrous extreme. Wow. Um, mm. but, but it's done in the name of Jesus. Jesus, yes. you know, Re John the Revelator reserves really to the gospel accounts, to Jesus' own sermon, the, the authority of identifying that this final apostasy is Christian in form, in name, but of course not in character. But now let me add one other thing to this. So the mark of the beast is received in the forehead and the hand, and a lot of different Christians have made different things of this, but I think there's a tendency to overlook the most basic uh, aspect of, of the fact of it being identified in, the, in the, the forehead and the hand. And and the issue is not whether it's literal or symbolic. Revelation is borrowing from the Old Testament. And in the Torah, in the books of Moses, three times, Jews are commanded to put God's law, to put the phylacteries on the forehead and the hand as part of worship. Well, what does that mean? And, and this is a practice that, that observant Orthodox Jews still do to this very day. Well, the first time is the Exodus story, Exodus 13, um, which is, you know, the story, it's really a, a parable, if you will, of the story of redemption, of, of passage from slavery in Egypt to, to freedom in the promised land, right? So it's the gospel, which means that the mark of the beast is a counterfeit of the genuine, which we see in Exodus and again in Deuteronomy, the passage that Jews call the Shema, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, etc. So the essence of the Shema is our love relationship with God, that we belong to God, that he belongs to us. 
And so the mark of the beast is a counterfeit means that we belong to the beast. You know, who do we belong to? Mm-hmm. Who do we worship? Who has our heart? Mm-hmm. And so I think these issues, um, you know, one of the questions that, uh, Steve, I think you posed for us to think about and talk about is, you know, well, what if Jesus were coming tomorrow? You know, would we do anything differently? And I think if we're living each day in conscious recognition and, you know, of, of God's love for us, of his presence uh, in our lives, of our um, obedience to his will, of our being, uh, you know, servants, and, you know, to live lives of love, you know, where love to God and love to neighbor are the operative principles in our lives, then I don't think we need to do anything differently. Mm-hmm. I think we just need to live each day for Christ, you know, with an open heart for how can we be a blessing to one another. I yeah. love that. Yeah, no, so I do much, too. Alan, so much. And, and what I hear both wow. of you... wow. What I hear both of you saying in essence is that, you know, these timelines and symbols and all these cool, these, these things are, are cool, right? In, in and of themselves, I think we ought to look at them and study them. But really, if you boil this stuff down, you look at what the essence is. Um, it's about, you know, the two great commandments, really, right? Loving God and loving right. your neighbor. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. it all goes back to that when you look at the religious people persecuting other people and, uh, and, and the issue of worship. Yeah, we know, we know from Bible prophecy one thing for sure, and that is that the world does not end by all the atheists ganging up on all the Christians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. the, world, the world does not end by, by you know, liberalism and, and atheism and everybody who's against God mm-hmm. suddenly, you know, turning against the formal Christian establishment, Mm -hmm. you know, there's going to be a big, a a big exchange of people moving in all directions because really what's happening is on the conservative Christian right and on the liberal, let's call it unbelieving or quasi Christian left. It doesn't matter what end of the spectrum you're on. Everybody's operating from the premise of either an egocentric picture of God mm-hmm. or a, a other-centered picture of God. Mm. And so all it takes is the right kind of convergence of pressures so that every person on the left and the right, you know, kind of manifests what's going on deep in their hearts, whatever their profession may be. So, so I could say it this way. I think there are a lot of people who are unbelievers for the right reasons mm-hmm. and a lot of people who are believers for the wrong reasons. Sure. So there are people who don't believe in God because they're fed up with superficial, patriotic, self-serving Christianity. Mm-hmm. So they're turning away from something they ought to be turning away from, but they can't necessarily do the, 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 the fine surgical separation of Christ from Christianity in the Christendom, you know, the empire sense. Um, so, so, so there are people on the Christian end of the spectrum, for example, who are, you know, speaking the name of Jesus, but they're operating by principles that are fundamentally opposite 
to Jesus. So, so, so when the pressures come, you know, it's going to be like the time of Christ in, in the sense that, you know, the liberal establishment, the religious leaders of the time that were liberal, uh, the Sadducees and the religious leaders that were conservative, the Pharisees, you know, they, they came together to crucify Christ because they had one vital thing in common. They hated each other. And it's that hatred in the heart, no matter what end of the spectrum you're on, that essentially makes you of the same spirit that will bring about the the persecutions, if you will, of the end of time. Mm, mm. You so know, I, I want to I want to pick up, if I can, quickly on this notion of of egocentric view of Jesus, because this ties in with something that I have been meditating about for many, many, many years. Seventh-day Adventists look at a passage in Revelation 14, beginning in verse 6, as the expression of the gospel proclamation before the return of Christ, beginning with the, the proclamation of the everlasting gospel, to fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water. And I've wondered for an awful long time, why... Why is it that the final proclamation of the gospel, it, you know, it doesn't really say, well, Jesus died for our sins or, you know, repent and believe. You know, there's a lot of formulations that we have today that that, that is not it. Why is it that, that this final expression is in terms of worship of the Creator? Now, Seventh-day Adventists may say, well, it's because, you know, there's such an important distinction to be made between Sabbath and Sunday. And that's fine as far as it goes. Sabbath is the, you know, the, the day that God set apart and rested and gave us for worship. I get that. But I think it goes deeper to what you were saying, Ty, about an egocentric, um, you know, uh, Jesus. We all have a tendency to create Jesus in our own image, a Jesus mm -hmm. that doesn't really demand very much. And, and when I first got this thought, it was from a writer who went in search of the American Jesus. It's the same writer who did the book, The Family, and now it's a, a Netflix series. But, uh, you know, in, in, uh, you know, he found a lot of different Jesuses, you know, uh, in South Central LA, a Jesus uh, wearing, you know, gang colors and, in San Francisco, a Jesus, uh, you know, a gay Jesus, and and a Jesus of the you know the uh, of the uh, uh, prosperity gospel churches wanting everybody to drive a BMW, you know, a lot, a lot of different Jesuses. And I tuned into how it was when I was uh, in my hippie days. Well, there were two Jesuses that I knew about. There was the black Jesus who had a really large afro, and then the white Jesus had you know shoulder length flowing hair and wore flowing white robes and wore sandals. So, you know, we figured he was a hippie like, like we were. Um, we all tend to create Jesus in our own image. And that's why the first angel's message is expressed in terms of worship of the creator, because the point is Christ wants to recreate us in his own image. Mm. Mm, mm, These are good mm. thoughts. 
let's let's pivot it here for a minute and talk about something that's related. This is great. I love I love uh, what we're getting into here, and and just kind of I guess along similar lines to some extent. You know, Ty going back and talking about the. Um, the, the spirit of hatred, and it seems like there's a lot of that in our world today. Uh, if you know you don't agree with somebody on you know political issue, or um, you know, yeah, in the church it happens. Uh, there's just this this venom out there, you know, this this uh, attitude, even among Christians. And one of those things that I'd like both of you to kind of talk about here is, you know, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories flying around out there, and right now with this current. Uh, coronavirus situation, you know, there's there's stuff that's uh, going around assigning blame for where the virus originated, how it's been spreading, and uh, just you know, from a big picture perspective, should followers of Jesus propagate sketchy stories that assign evil motives to you know every governmental action and 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 stir up anger against you know supposed villains out there? How do we as Christians? as we are in these chaotic times um, relate to all of this stuff out there, the fake news, the, um, the attitudes, the hatred, the uh, just the venom and, and the stuff in society that we see. So first off um, we should avoid conspiracy theories like the play. Uh, Steve, man. And, and Ellen, you have Ellen, heard- just stop for a second and define uh, maybe what you mean by a conspiracy theory. I probably should have done that a minute ago. Um, how would you, how would you kind of well, just summarize let, what that well, is let, in your book? Let me put it, let me put it to you this way. As Christians, our work, our message is not about anything that is secret or hidden. You know, even mm-hmm. people, the book of Revelation is mysterious, but what does the word revelation mean? It's the revealing of <laughs> Jesus Christ. This is true, yeah. Right? So, you know, if, if there's something that's secret, if there's something that you know that nobody else knows or that only a few people know, well, then stick it on the shelf because it's not our message. And it probably doesn't really matter very much. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. A conspiracy theory is essentially the idea that there are, that there are uh, individuals whose names we do not know who are behind the scenes uh, deliberately orchestrating events. And so if we knew what was really going on, I mean, somebody just said to me the other day, uh, just in passing, this is like a soft form of conspiracy theory. Um, we were talking about the coronavirus and, and this individual says, well, the reason, the reason why they are doing this mm-hmm. is in order to, and then there was an explanation for the reason they are doing this coronavirus. And I just paused and I said, well, who are they that are doing <laughs> right. the coronavirus? Mm-hmm. I mean, th- this, this basically originated in an open meat market, um, and who are they? And the person just paused and said, well, you know, we, we don't know who they are. That's, that's the point, but, but they're, but they're there and they're orchestrating these things that are, that are taking place. I mean, if you really think about it, um, the, the recent developments, and this is not a, a partisan statement whatsoever. This is an observational statement. The recent developments in politics in, in America are evidence to my mind, that the, there is no group of people who orchestrate 
behind the scenes in some kind of <laughs> deliberate manner. Right. You mean they wouldn't have chosen they wouldn't have chosen Donald Trump as uh, as their uh, <laughs> that, that's that's what I that's what I was deep state. He just came right out and said it. There's just no way. I mean they. They, they, this was not orchestrated. This is chaos theory on display. Mm-hmm. You know, butterfly effect is, is unfolding right in front of us. So, so conspiracy theories are basically the idea that there's some nameless group uh, of elite individuals who are pulling all the strings and making all these things happen. You know, they created the coronavirus in a lab and deliberately re- released it. None of that is provable. And Christians should completely, anybody who names the name of Jesus should completely steer clear. I think we have a moral obligation as followers of Jesus to, to assume the best mm-hmm. of all individuals and, and to not be spinning stories or latching onto stories that there is no proof for. It, it, it really gives the gospel uh, a bad reputation. It gives Jesus in the minds of people a black eye. So it's detracting from from the spread of the gospel. Ephesians, amen, brother. Yeah, amen. Ephesians six twelve, where we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I think that uh, you know, and, and I've been involved in conspiracy, you know, believing in conspiracy theories in the past. Um, as a kid, I remember I kind of grew up in an environment where every everything was, you know, a conspiracy theory. It seemed like and. Um, there's a lot of uh, bearing a false witness, I think, with that, because you're accusing people of things that are really not provable. You're saying this leader's you know, an evil person, they're doing this, but you can't really show that. And, yeah, I agree. Christians shouldn't be involved in that. And secondly, uh, they're not the enemy. Human beings are not the enemy, right? We're here to save people, that's right. not to uh, assume the worst of them. I, I think that's, a, a really, that's really well said. Um, Alan, I want to even the ones that even the one even the ones that you and I might not particularly like or agree care with, for. Sure, this, yeah, yeah, and still and, deserve you know respect and dignity and the hope of their salvation coming through in our in our demeanor. Absolutely, yeah, and you know, and that's let's face it, it's difficult when um, you know, let's say there's there's politicians, uh, and no matter which side you're coming from, who you have a difficult time, you know, even listening to or maybe respecting. Um, and yet I think that we're, we're told to pray for these people, you know, and, uh, we, mm. and that kind of gets to the whole idea I want to talk to you guys about in a second of, um, you know, loving, loving our enemies. Um, what happens if there ever is actual persecution before we get there, Alan, I want to ask your perspective on this as, um, a civil rights attorney, religious, religious liberty attorney. Um, so, you know, there's also been some talk along with the conspiracy theory stuff about, hey, the government is conspiring to, you know, shut churches down. Uh, that's why this coronavirus thing is happening. Or, you know, at least as a consequence of the coronavirus, they're restricting our religious liberties by saying we can't have, you know, large gatherings. Um, do those restrictions actually violate religious liberty and the principles and, and laws that we have here in America? Um, Ellen, you have written a great piece on that that you shared with me. And uh, just give us, uh, walk us through some of the legal framework that uh, allows the government to do this kind of thing and, and, and share your perspective on why or why not that that uh, restricts religious liberty. Sure, be glad to. And, and, and I will say, that the religious liberty, the potential challenges, are it's a changing landscape. So I can comment where we are today, and I don't know where we're going to be 
tomorrow or next week. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, what we're looking at initially are either mandated or recommended restrictions on gatherings. And most churches have, uh, you know, expressed to their own members, yeah, we're going to close the church because we think that that's really um, appropriate. Uh, we're taking this very seriously. And when you look at the public health projections about the numbers of people who are likely to get infected and uh, the number of people who are likely to die, um, <clears throat> the, the analysis would be, from a legal standpoint, even under the, you know, the strictest protection for religious liberty, you would ask whether the state has a sufficiently compelling interest. And certainly saving lives is about as basic um, uh, a compelling interest as you're ever going to find. But, but then the question becomes, well, is there any way to achieve this compelling state interest that's less restrictive of, uh, you know, of religion and, and religious liberty? And so the question is, well, can we restrict gatherings other than churches and allow churches to meet and still have the same, you know, have, have an effective impact on on reducing the spread of the virus. And I think if you stop and think about it, the practical answer is no. There is no way to uh, accomplish the public health goals um, unless we all make uh, the most serious efforts. And, you know, as a church, I mean, as Christians, we should be, uh, you know, pro-life, right? Um, What does it mean to be pro-life? Are we just pro, you know, the unborn lives? Are we going to care about uh, those who are immunocompromised and and elderly and Mm -hmm. at risk Mm -hmm. uh, as well? And if we do, then we should be really boning up on, you know, the best hygiene methods and the best prevention and social distancing methods, and uh, we should be cooperating. Now, just in the last 24 hours as, as we're talking, Another issue arose whether here in California the restrictions imposed by Governor Newsom meant that pastors should not be going to their churches with a, a small number of technicians and live streaming, you know, broadcasting uh, services or sermons from the church. And I think at this point, uh, while it, those kinds of restrictions uh, may actually become in force at some point. I, I don't believe that they are uh, widely in force as yet. And my own experience doing a live stream last week, I think that we can uh, live stream and respect social distancing and hygiene and, and not be at risk. So, uh, you know, if, if there were strict enforcement to prevent that, uh, I, I would be very concerned about that. Um, but I think as a general matter, yes, we, we have to, all of us, take this seriously and, uh, you know, practice uh, good, good social distancing and, and good hygiene and good health practices to, uh, to do our part, to, to try to, you know, prevent the spread of the disease. So I'm is, not an attorney, but I, I'd like to I'd like to just offer a, a, a perspective that I think 
uh, goes along with what Alan said. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that okay for someone who's not an attorney to have an opinion no, on this? No, 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 we can't let you. <laughs> Please. <laughs> okay, the simple, I want Alan to critique this. Is, is this, is this, because this is the way I'm looking at it, and this is what I'm telling people. So, so what do you think of this, Alan? I'm saying, listen, as long as a restriction or a law is not religious or political in its aim, it's okay. In other words, if the restrictions are to silence uh, political protests or freedom of speech or religious expression, then there's a fundamental problem. But if the restrictions are simply in the interests of public well-being, hey, there's a tornado coming you know, toward this city, so everybody vacate uh, with your children well, no, I'm going to stay here with my children. Well, you're not going to put your children at risk, and so we're going to force you to leave your home uh, because your children uh, need to be kept safe. So, so it, it's a public health issue. I see no problem with the government saying, hey, everybody, you know, go home, stay indoors, and, and, and so on and so forth, because they're not, it's not religiously motivated, and it's not even politically motivated. It's, it's, it, it's really... Uh, quite practical, as you said. Well, Kai, I think that your comment has some merit, but I think it also highlights one of the uh, doctrinal uh, disputes within the legal and religious liberty community about what kinds of government restrictions on religion uh, should be uh, subject to to challenge, and and that we're going to have to leave as a more in depth discussion for another time. Um, okay. And, and in fact, that very issue, uh, there are cases on the docket of the Supreme Court. They haven't taken them yet, but if they do take them, they may take a look at that very issue as to whether um, you know generally applicable laws that don't target religion, whether people can raise religious freedom objections to how those laws unduly restrict their religion, even if that was not the design of, of the law. Mm. But okay. In, but in this case, of course, there's, there's overlapping issues here that uh, make this not a religious liberty issue in and of itself at this point. So, um, and, and my point is, you know, even, even if you apply the most protective kind of construct for protecting religious freedom, mm-hmm. uh, it's still not uh, a religious, it's still not a violation of religious freedom because uh, we have to do this for public health and safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me ask you guys this. What if this was actually persecution? Okay, so let's just say that, oh yeah, this they're targeting, you know, churches. They're targeting people of faith. They're targeting um those who want to worship God, how should Christians treat, you know, their persecutors? I mean, I think this, we've kind of already touched on this, but this is going to happen in the future perhaps. And and how should we react? I find an extremely helpful uh, nuance from Jesus again in Matthew 24. Uh, Can I work us through that? It'll just take a minute. It's it's a little complex, but once the penny drops, it's like, aha, it's an aha moment. Okay, so in Matthew 24, um, Jesus says they will deliver you up 
to tribulation and kill you. That's what we're calling persecution, okay? And they will, you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. That's verse nine. So again, we're dealing with, you know, you're going, you, you as followers of mine, you're going to be treated badly. You're going to be persecuted. Um, many will be offended, verse 10, and will betray one another and they will hate one another. So we, ha- we have hatred, betrayal, persecution. And then these words, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be spared or saved. And this gospel, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So check this out. Jesus is saying here, listen, hatred, persecution is going to become a a reality. Lawlessness is going to abound. It's going to escalate. And love is going to be the thing at risk. Love is going to grow cold, but he who endures, the grammar is indicating, he who endures in love to the end. The love of many will grow cold, but he who endures against hatred and against persecution, he who endures in love will be saved. And this gospel, and now the grammar is indicating that this gospel is the witness or the demonstration of an ongoing love in the face of persecution and hatred. Mm, mm-hmm. What do you guys think of that? It's deep. I like it. Well, I, th- I, think it I think it tracks very nicely with the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, it's in terms of... Um, uh, loving your enemies. Uh, I mean, here at the end of Matthew chapter 5, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. You know, culture has changed a lot since then, but but I th- think this is uh, something consistent from then till now, is that universal uh, uh, disdain for tax collectors, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, Jesus goes on just to finish up here. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, you know, Jesus says, you know, and, and I think the Greek really has a sense of completion. If we're, if we're going to be, you know, fully formed as Christians, complete, then it has to do with the kind of attitude that we show to those that we want to reject, those we regard as enemies. And, and I think um, I'm going to make one final connection here. Uh, I, earlier, I mentioned the first angel's message, the judgment hour message. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Well, we we Adventists, we say that, um, yeah, uh, you know, the judgment is is very serious thing, and uh, we're going to be judged, and there's a, a pre-Advent judgment. And when Jesus returns, he knows 
who he's coming to return for. He's already made up his mind and, and all of that. Uh, but we forget the parable of the judgment in Matthew 25, where Jesus says that those who are the sheep who are on the right side of the judgment are the ones who gave a cup of cold water to the thirsty. They clothed the naked. They fed the hungry. They you know, gave shelter to the stranger. And all the while, they, they didn't even realize they were doing it to Jesus. Uh, mm-hmm. But they did it to the least of these. Mm-hmm. And the least, in, in, in my thinking, are the ones that uh, we want to reject. And uh, mm-hmm. Steve, you know, mm-hmm. you may you, you may have uh, different prejudices than I do, but we all have prejudices. Mm-hmm. You know, there's people that you know we don't want to have to deal with, uh, based on our own culture and our own upbringing and uh, you know our own humanity. But uh, I think that's the real measure here. Uh, and so, uh, Ty, I love what you did there with Matthew 24. Enduring in love, I, I think that's absolutely right on. Mm-hmm. That we need to endure mm-hmm. in love and, and love to God and love to our neighbor, whoever that neighbor may mm-hmm. be. Yeah. Yeah, loving your enemies is really the, the truest test of love, right? Like Jesus said, you can love those who love you, but loving your enemies, that's where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, yeah. All right, but, but Steve, i got to throw in here, because you know, when I've preached loving your enemies, mm-hmm. I, I give this sort of disclaimer. I don't think any of us are capable mm. of loving our enemies. Mm-hmm. This is a God thing. So, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. I, I don't want to put a guilt I don't sure. want to put a guilt trip on anybody. This is something that we need the spirit of God in our oh, hearts absolutely. to be able to do that. Absolutely. Totally. Mm-hmm. All right, I want to I'm going to throw this at you guys and and we're going to wrap this up in a second here, but uh let's see. We'll we'll start with uh who wants to go first? I don't care. Um Give me your 30-second synopsis on what the future of the world is according to, to the Bible and, and why it matters. Uh, I'll go first, okay. I guess. Um, I would say that, that if, if I were to distill final events as expressed in the book of Revelation in Matthew 24, Luke 21, John 16, I would say that that the real underlying issue is the gospel um, because everybody's going to act out their picture of God mm-hmm. under the pressures that will come upon the world, whether those pressures be in the form of, you know, coronavirus or persecution that is foretold that will happen. The pressures will bring to the surface who I really am. And according to Bible prophecy, the who I really am part is going to be manifested, I think, in the answering of a single question. Will I trade freedom, mine or other people's freedom, for safety? Hmm. I think that's the bottom line. Am I willing to buy in to a construct politically or religiously that would restrict the freedom of even those I disagree with religiously. So will I trade freedom for safety? I think it is, is going to be very, very pivotal. Will I, will I trade my safety uh, or my freedom for, you know, basically keeping my, 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 what we call sometimes here in America, our way of life, 
mm-hmm. the way we want our way of life to be. Um, and will I be as staunch in my protection of the freedoms and liberties of others, even if I, you know, disagree with them religiously? Beautiful. Ellen? You know, I don't want to add to that because uh, I just uh, adding an amen. I want to go on to adding a couple of favorite Bible promises sure. for these days, which was your uh, your last prompting here. And um, I'm going to pick a couple of my favorites. Uh, when I'm sitting on a mountaintop uh, hiking or uh, looking out, I will always turn to Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should move, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling. (coughs) And then um, Isaiah 43 But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not be afraid, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Alan Reinick, Ty Gibson, thanks so much for taking the time today to talk on the Do Justice podcast here. And I trust we'll I'll see you guys on the other side of this at some point. So um, mm-hmm. thank you. Steve, I hope we get to do this again. Yeah. Steve, and here's here's my present salutation that I this is for everybody. Stay safe and soapy. Yes, and far away. <laughs> That's right. Thanks for listening. Email us your comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes of the Do Justice Podcast. Our email is dojusticenow at icloud.com. 